Two others also who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The leaders scoffed, let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And one of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, Are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, We are getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Our hospice programs tell us that most people who realize that death is now very close for them prefer to die in their own homes, if possible, and if not, to be surrounded at least by family and friends who love them the most. John's Gospel says that John followed Jesus to the cross. All of the Gospels agree that there were women who followed him all the way to the cross, including his own mother. But the other ten seem to have rushed back to the upper room and locked the door for fear of the Roman authorities and the leaders of the Jews. Those physically closest to him were criminals, one on the right, one on the left. I've underlined four things in this text that I think are very important. The first, Luke goes to great length to show you that it was not only the horror of dying, this worst of Roman deaths, but that people kept screaming, ranting, raving at him, scoffing, taunting, all through those hours on the cross. First, he began with the leaders. Now, some people think that the crowd that welcomed Jesus on Sunday morning was the same crowd that was screaming, crucify him, but the gospel writers are very clear that's not the case if you read carefully. Here in Luke's gospel, he says, the laos, the people, stood silently watching. Hopeless, helpless feeling there was absolutely nothing they could do with so many Roman soldiers around doing this horrible thing they were doing to Jesus. It was the leaders, the religious leaders, who scoffed at him saying, come on, save yourself if you really are the Messiah of God, using the words that Simon Peter had used of him. Who do you think I am, Jesus asked. I believe you are the Messiah of God. In Mark's gospel, it says, Bless you, Simon. Flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I tell you, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you Petros, Peter, the rock. Upon this rock I will build my church. Yet those at the crucifixion are still scoffing, If you are the Messiah, 
And then the soldiers picked up the taunt. All four gospel writers agree that the charge nailed above the cross itself was the king of the Jews. And so they say, if in fact you are the king of the Jews, save yourself and come down from the cross. Even one of the criminals. And the verb form here is continuous action. He kept taunting, taunting. Three long hours they would hang on those crosses. Three long, miserable hours he kept taunting. If you are the Savior, save yourself and us. The question is, can you see in Mary's child Jesus the Messiah of God? Some saw, more didn't see. Some believed, more on that day did not believe. Dr. John Buchanan, I've told you, is just retired, Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. Still is editing Christian Century magazine. In a recent editorial, he was talking about the death of a Presbyterian minister he had admired all of his adult life, Harry Geisinger. He said, when I had just finished seminary and was still struggling about exactly what God was calling me to do, someone suggested I go see Harry Geisinger, an older minister. And I sat down with Harry and told him, I'm still not sure I'm doing the right thing. I mean, I'm coming up on ordination now, and I'm not quite sure I'm doing the right thing. And Harry said, I remember the night I sat in that small room waiting to get married and how frightened I was. My bride and I had not rushed into this. We had known each other for quite some time. We had dated each other for quite some time. We both thought we were doing the right thing, but now we were only moments from meeting at the altar there. And I tell you, my palms were sweaty and wet. I could feel perspiration coming down my temples. I was frightened out of my mind. But you know what? I've been married to her for years. She's one of the best things that's ever, ever happened to me. John, I've discovered through the years that the more important the decision, the more likely you're going to have questions about whether you're doing the right thing. And then John Buchanan wrote, Faith in the Bible is not really a feeling. Faith in the Bible is not really just a belief. Faith is a verb. It's something you do. When Jesus began his ministry, he didn't say, Simon, Andrew, James, John, do you believe I'm the Messiah of God? He said, drop your nets and come with me. They barely knew him, had hardly seen anything at all, had heard virtually nothing. And he said, drop your fishing nets and come with me. And they dropped their nets and followed him. And in the following, they became faithful. In the following, they began to feel 
In the following, they began to believe. If he is Messiah, would you risk a little or a lot by following? The four Gospels combined give us seven sentences from the cross. But no one of the Gospel writers give us all seven. You have to read all four to get the seven last words. But Luke gives you three of them, and they're all in this passage we've just read. So the second thing I underlined here, that first sentence from the cross, just after he's been crucified, Luke says, with all these taunting him, deriding him, he says, Abba, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, if this is a prayer only for some a long time ago, this sentence isn't going to mean what it ought to mean because it's about you and me also. You know that John and Charles Wesley began the reform movement within the Church of England that eventually would culminate in the Methodist Church, both in England and the United States. They never left the Anglican Church. They were clergy in the Anglican Church all of their adult lifetimes and died Anglican priests. But those who followed their reform movements did become, in time, a separate body. Gail and I have been to Charles Wesley's home on two different occasions. Charles lived the last years of his life in Bristol. And in an apartment there, it's one of those stacked so that you have just a little bit of room on three different floors. But we've been inside that apartment from 300 years ago. Charles was the younger by four years. His brother John had gone to London with much sacrifice to the family. There were no public schools in England 300 years ago. One had to go to a private school if one went at all. And his father made so little money uh, pastoring a tiny little church in a little nowhere place called Epworth. Uh, Gail and I have been there three times, and twice the driver got lost trying to find Epworth. An English driver got lost. It's that far out of the way. And yet, mother and father saving frugally that these two little boys could have good education after graduation from Charterhouse School in London, each went on to Oxford, graduated there, became Anglican priests. As young men, roughly 30 years of age, they got on an old rickety ship and came to the colonies, to Georgia. They had a miserable experience here and started home again. They were in a terrible hurricane in the North Atlantic. They really thought they were going to die. Finally, were so sure they were going to die, they decided just to go as far down into that little old ship as they could and wait for their fate. And when they got into the deepest part of the ship, here was that little handful of Moravian Christians, Germans, singing quietly and then praying and singing another hymn quietly and praying. Neither of the brothers forgot that. When they got safely back to England, they started trying to get what the Moravians had. They wanted what these Moravian Christians had. And it was Charles who had the experience before John. It was Charles. Someone who'd grown up in the faith, who'd grown up going to Mass every Sunday, who was now ordained himself, but had never quite had that 
personal connection with the crucified and risen Christ that he did have. Within a few months after that trip, he had that experience. He was so excited, he shared it with John. And John started trying to have that same experience. Finally went to a Moravian prayer meeting where he too had that experience. Where this became very personal. And John, John would be the preacher. Charles would be the poet. Who wrote more than 4,000 hymn texts. And one of those, so appropriate this week. O love divine, what hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me? And he concludes each stanza by saying, not past tense, my love, my Lord, is crucified. The second verse begins, is crucified. For me and you to bring us rebels back to God, my Lord, my love, is crucified. This prayer was for people 2,000 years ago, but this prayer is for you and me. Abba, forgive them. Second, As one of these criminals railed at him, taunted him, and just kept on taunting him, the other said, How can you do this? You and I deserve our fate. We knew this was the risk in the kind of lives we were living. But this man, it says literally in Greek, has done nothing out of place. The British have an expression similar in this year that... Princess Catherine has now been a part of the royal family. Every so often they report on something she's done, and while I'm shaving, hearing this on the news early in the morning, they'll say, well, she still hasn't put a foot wrong. She still hasn't put a foot wrong. It's a similar expression. He's done nothing out of place. Lord, he said, Remember me when you come into your basilion, from which we get the word basilica, your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. I can tell it's not like the kingdom all these people are begging you to have. All of these are screaming at you, if you are the Messiah, save yourself. I understand this is something different. And whatever it is, I want to be there with you. John and Charles Wesley rode horseback all over England, then into Scotland, then crossed over to Ireland, one preaching, the other writing hymns, poetry. Into their early 80s, these guys were still climbing up on horses and going to preach where the people were, in the marketplaces, at the street corners, when the miners came out of the mines. Though Charles was younger... He died before John. He lived to be 81. John was still living. John died in an apartment in London. Gail and I were there again on our last trip. We rode the underground. You can get to a stop just a couple blocks away. Got off the underground and walked. 
We went to the cemetery across the street where their mother is buried because she was a dissenter from the Church of England and not allowed to be buried by their father, who remained faithful all those years. John is buried just behind the chapel that he and Charles and others built 300 years ago. Still a beautiful little church there. His grave is right behind. And the apartment has been maintained for 300 years. On the night John knew that death was close, a little group of friends hovered over him. They were reminiscing. Remember the afternoon when we got to Epworth? John was going to preach in his father's church, and they wouldn't allow it because he couldn't constrain his enthusiasm. And so he climbed up onto his father's grave, which is covered with concrete. It's built up climbed up on his father's grave and all the people came out of the church and listened to him preach in the cemetery. Ah, yeah. Remember that afternoon we were in the marketplace in Epworth and we went across the street and ate in the restaurant. I've eaten in that restaurant. It's still there after 300 years. They talked about the coal miners. They talked about the people who farmed potatoes and how they would listen when they preached reminiscing, reminiscing. Every once in a while, John would open his eyes, smile, close his eyes again. But the last thing he said to them, he opened his eyes, looked at these closest, dearest friends and said, but the best of all, the Lord is with us. I want to be with you. You will be with me today in paradise. And then he said, Abba, into your hands. I commit my ruach, my spirit, my breath. Six weeks ago, Rabbi Gunter Plaut died. You've heard me quote him any number of times when I preach from the Hebrew Scriptures. What a genius. What a man of great power and strength. Born in Münster, Germany, he went to the University of Berlin, had a Doctor of Laws degree when he was 21 years old, but he was a Jew, and so when Adolf Hitler came to power, he was not allowed to practice or to pursue his education. Some who were concerned and saw that things were getting worse quickly offered him a scholarship if he would come to Cincinnati, Ohio, the Hebrew Union Seminary, and he did come. Uh, rabbi Herman Shalman, the first rabbi in our series who came to us from Chicago, was a part of that same small class of Jews who were offered scholarship to come from Germany to Hebrew Union in Cincinnati. It saved their lives because while they were in the seminary, things got worse and worse in Germany. Gunter Plaut became a citizen in the United States in 1943 and immediately volunteered to serve in the United States Army. He was made a chaplain in the 104th Infantry and was sent to Germany. It was his unit that liberated the camp at Dora Nordhausen. And this is what he wrote. Here I saw these emaciated cousins skin and bone 
who had not yet been gassed or burned, those few who survived, how desperately they needed food and water. But when they saw the star of David on my helmet, they asked, Rabbi, do you have a kippah, please? Rabbi, do you have a prayer shawl, please? Rabbi, do you have Torah? Read to me, please. Abba, into your hands I commit my spirit. <laughs> 